couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Weston began this series called A Time for Kings, where he really, he opened up the scripture and dissected some things about David's life and, and what we even need to be careful with in our own lives. The week after that, um, as a little bit of a curveball, but you'll understand why it was so important, um, I preached a message called Satan's Greatest Desire. And ultimately, we learned that Satan's greatest desire was to, to cause us to worship him because that's what he wanted from the very beginning, and that's will, that will be what he wants in the very end. And the way that we do that is by being more like him than we are like Jesus, where Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost by serving them, Lucifer looked for an opportunity to receive God's glory for himself and to be served. And we defined that, we gave that as an image or an example of the definition of pride, if you will. Is that Lucifer, not Adam and the woman, but Lucifer and pride were the original sin. And by being prideful, we become more like him than we are like Jesus. So in this series last week, we came to this place where we began to look at the stages of David's life. We started out in the average stage when he was just a, a shepherd boy in a pasture with sheep by himself. And then he was called by the man of God and, and anointed by the hand of God. He was in that anointed stage. And I, I told you that he didn't go to the palace after he was anointed. He went back to the place where he just was. But he went back different than he was before. And sometimes God will meet us and anoint us. And we don't get to go to that new place. We get to go back to where we were and be new in that place. Come on, somebody. We get to go back where we just came from and show the glory of God in the position that we're in. And then the next phase was the armor bearer. Because before David could ever be served, he had to learn how to serve and be like Jesus. Through all these stages... David had to pass what we would call the obedience test. And we give you this little catchphrase, and, and it's really where we're going to settle and launch from today. But I want you to understand that obedience is the key to your next opportunity. In fact, I believe that obedience now is the key to my next. In other words, if you can't be faithful where you are, then why would you be faithful where you're going? Okay, let me give you another just simple illustration. Um, a lot of people think that marriage is the answer, right? That marriage is the answer to their finances. Man, if I just marry somebody rich. Now, I just received that, you know, and that she would just, whoo, an anointing would fall upon her and something would happen and vent and we'd just, yeah, that happened. That didn't happen for her or me, but we think that marriage is the answer and, and some, we think marriage is the answer to our purity. So we have young men and young women getting married because they think that marriage was the, is the answer for the impurity. And then we wonder why we carry that impurity into our marriage and our marriage remains impure. It's because we never really repented. We thought the marriage was the answer, but I'm telling you marriage isn't the answer. Whoever you were before you were married is what you're going to be when you get married. You just have a lot more people that are succumbed to your lack of discipline. And now there's a lot more on the line. Marriage is not the answer. Listen to me. Jesus is the answer. And if you can learn how to love him, live for him, and be pure in Christ before you get married, then you won't have to go through a lot of the stuff that some of us had to go through because we thought that marriage was the answer. It's him that's the king of glory. It's him that paves the way to purity. And it's him that we develop the relationship because he didn't create somebody to, to fulfill us. He created us to be fulfilled in him. Okay? There is no body. There's no person that's, that's waiting for you. It's the obedience in the now that will take you to the next. Last week, we discussed the difficulty of being in that stage, that, that average stage when you're alone. And, and even when you're in that anointed stage and then you're sent back to the field or, or you're sent to serve or, or maybe like Saul did today or like David's daddy did to him Jesse even after he was anointed okay that's great go back to the sheep oh wait hang on I need you to carry some cheese to the battlefield to feed your brothers and instead of uh instead of whining or saying hey dad I don't know if you remember or not but a minute ago you left me out and the prophet came and anointed me and I'm king kings don't carry cheese that's not what David said David took the cheese and he took them to his brothers he took them to the king because he knew where he came from he knew who he was supposed to serve and his obedience in that moment prepared him for what was coming. 
He had a dream. He had a vision. He had a plan. He had a prophetic word. He had an anointing. But he ended up in a dark cave by himself. Surrounded by a bunch of other people that were going through a whole lot of mess. And he learned how to lead those people in the midst of his mess. Because he learned how to lean on Jesus. And he learned how to be more than he would have been had he not gone through what he was going through. The enemy tried to kill him. The enemy tried to take his life. And God let him sit in that place. He felt like a sitting duck. He probably wanted to jump ship, but God said, stay put. So he waited in the delay, but he was obedient. Last week was the most difficult stage. That waiting, that delay, that having something stirring in you, preparing for something that you know God has placed in you. And God saying, just wait, just wait. It's coming. Be patient. Be obedient where you are. Just wait. This week, I want to talk to you what I believe actually, it feels like a prophetic word for this church. It's the accomplishment stage. The accomplishment stage. This is the stage where incubation begins to be birthed. It's the stage where things become, come to fruition. It's the, it's the stage where you begin to see a harvest unlike you've ever seen before. And I believe that, that church, this church is seeing this. And I don't believe that the best is behind us. I believe that the best is yet to come. And God's going to continue to use this church to minister to this community, the surrounding areas, and win people to his kingdom. Because we're, we're not just into kingdom relocating, we're into kingdom building. And God is sending people so that he can equip them to understand who they were created to be and to serve somebody else. But if we're not careful... We will succumb to the seduction of success just like David did. See, accomplishment can actually be the most dangerous season in our lives. It's the season of success. It's the time when we quit putting on our spiritual armor. When we go out to, when everybody else goes out to battle, we sit back and watch them fight. It's when we've raised up enough people around us that some people even fight our battles for us. And we've been successful long enough that we, some, we, we watch other people begin to operate in the anointing that God gave us. It's when we raise up our children into a place where we sit back and we grow comfortable with what we raised them to be instead of continuing on our own journey and becoming who God created and continuing to become who God created us to be. Now listen, I don't, I don't have a problem with uh, you know, raising up your children. And uh, I, I've been... At, just here recently, I was, Megan and I were having a conversation a couple weeks ago. I said, look, do you think four is really too young to teach uh, Gabriel how to mow the yard? I mean, is that a, I mean, I, I was always taught, you know, like, if you can put your glove on it, you should catch it. And I'm thinking, look, if he's tall enough to reach the handle, then he can guide the thing. It's self-propelled. If it gets away from him, it should keep on running. It's not going to go backwards. He'll be okay. And so I don't have a problem with, with training and delegating. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to understand that telling and training are not the same thing. That we need to take the time to explain the why to the next generation so that they will understand the what. We can't just assume that they will understand the importance of what we found important just because we did it. We have to show them. We have to train them. We have to lead them. We have to be the example. And then help them learn how to be. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. It's where Pastor Weston really opened this series. The scripture says at the time when kings go out to battle. David tarried in Jerusalem. The accomplishment stage is a dangerous season. Because it was the time in Noah's life. When he quit building for the future. And he started planting vineyards. And becoming drunk. It was a time in the life of Moses. When he had led the Israelites out of the Egyptians' uh, bondage and slavery, he had crossed the Red Sea. He had gotten to the other side. And that's a, a sign, a symbol of, of water baptism and salvation in Jesus' name. And you get to the other side and you're delivered and free, but God still has a vision for you. And Moses, instead of leading his people and going out and surveying the land with the twelve, he sent Joshua and Caleb out to do his job. And Joshua and Caleb were not adequately uh, equipped to come back and communicate what only Moses could lead the people into. Moses sat back and watched somebody else do what God had anointed and appointed him to do instead of going out and leading the way as he had led before. He, they, were not ready to, they were not ready for the platform. They were not ready for the responsibility. So the people did not follow them because the vision did not come from God to the leader to the people. 
Moses sat back and he settled in with being satisfied. I crossed the Red Sea. I've been saved. I must be good now. I'm free from my past and the sin. But friend, listen, you may be free from your past. It doesn't mean you're free for your future yet. You've got, a good, you've got a promised land to go to. You may have crossed the Red Sea, but there's a Jordan River ahead of you. That That's the place that Jesus walked in. And you still got to go through that and some enemies before you inherit the promised land. And just because you've been somewhere before doesn't mean that you're going to... Because what you faced in the past, what you overcame in the past, doesn't set you up just to sit, be successful in the future. It's that accomplishment stage. It's where Moses said, hey, look, look what I've done and look where I've led the people. Hey, Joshua, Caleb, y'all go check out the land. Let me know what it looks like. When if he would have gone and checked out the land and he would have come back and shared the vision of God for the people, then they might have inherited the promised land instead of an entire generation dying without inheriting. David passed the praise test in the beginning. So he became successful. It was the praise test. And look, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with like it, understanding, like giving a little credit. My wife was fussing at me a minute ago. Somebody came out of the first service. They were like, Pastor, it was such a great message. I was like, yeah, I didn't write it. <laughs> like, you know, I was like, you don't have to do that. I'm not saying like, I just say, she's like, why can't he just say thank you? And, and I just, I make myself do that on purpose because I don't want to, I don't ever want to begin to give myself glory for something that God put together. Maybe I heard it from another man. Maybe I sourced it in a book. Or maybe the Holy Spirit gave to me in the secret place of my office. But, but whatever it is, it's probably not coming from me if it's good. Because God is good within me. So I just have a hard time saying thank you. I'm not saying that you can't take credit for things that you accomplish. But you, take, you can't take glory for what God is doing through you. And I don't know, I don't know at what point that David began to believe it. But I, I imagine... That when he would come into the city, not as the king, even though he was anointed to be, but as a warrior, as one that was simply serving the king and an armor bearer and a battle and, a, and someone who would fight the fight, that when he would come into the king and he would the kingdom and hear the women singing his praises, that it would become seductive for him. That he would hear the, the people in the city singing songs such as Saul has slayed their thousands, but David has slain his ten thousand. That at some point it was difficult for David not to believe the praise that was sung about him. I'm sure that he was no exception. So the question that we have to answer in the accomplishment stage is when given the opportunity to sing your own praise, what will you do? When people celebrate who you are, will you remember who you serve and who made you that way? Will you remember that you were just average in a field alone until God sent a prophet to speak life into you? Will you remember that it was that you were a nobody from nowhere until Jesus fixed his eyes upon you and you realized that he had been relentless after you since the day of your creation? That you are average and He is awesome. That you are average and you stand in all of His glory, not receiving any of it from your, for yourself, but sharing it with the people that He's put around you. That you're not the King, you're just a servant of the King. And it's the King that deserves the glory and the praise. You have to ask the question, how, how could David, a man after God's own heart, how could David, a man that would dance before the Lord in front of all the people and not give a, a, a split end as a, a, what people think about it? How did David go from dancing before the Lord in all of his glory, God's glory, to standing on his rooftop and perverting himself at the expense of other people's wives? What caused David to go from a man after God's own heart to a man after his own flesh? And the question is probably answered in the idea that David began to entertain the thought that he was worthy of the praise that was being sang about him. See, in the very beginning, Lucifer was cast like lightning from heaven with a third of the angels because he began to draw off of what was only meant for God and use it on himself. And it's that same prideful justification of receiving praise and celebration that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven that was the first step to David's fall. Why would David go become an, uh, when he was anointed, he would become an adulterer. 
when he was in awe of God and his presence, he would begin to sleep in and watch other people fight his battles for him. Because if you're willing to take that first step of receiving glory for yourself that was only meant for God, then there is no telling what else you would be willing to do after you're willing to take that step. To receive the praise. Because listen to me, this is really important. We were not created to handle what only God deserves. We were not created for that. And we can't handle it. We can't handle the praise. We can't handle the success. We can't handle the glory. But He can. And that's why we redirect it. It goes in us and right back out into His throne room. And whenever we divert that glory back to the Father, we stay in the proper place. Average before an all-surpassing Father that is able to accomplish anything that He wants in and through anybody. We're given the opportunity. Will you sing your own praise? Or will you continue to serve the King? It's the accomplishment stage. It's the danger. It's the danger of being seduced by success. It led to the fifth stage in David's life, the apathy stage. It's where he quit caring. He had a loss of passion, a loss of zeal, a loss of drive, a loss of vision. It was the same thing that happened to Moses. When Moses stopped receiving vision from God, he stopped having anything to say to the people. When David stopped receiving vision from God, he started creating his own. The scripture says that without vision, the people will cast off restraint. So if we're not hearing from God and sharing what God has to say with our families, then we can't be confused when they begin to make up their own purpose and their own plan. We've got to understand that we are not the voice of the people for God, but we are the voice of God for the people. And when we hear from him, we have something to say. But when we're not taking the time to do it because we're apathetic and we're dis unconcerned or disconnected, it's not God's fault. It's when we look at life and we begin to think, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Instead of what's in me for this. This is a critical stage. It's the place where you have to make an evaluation before an ultimate fail and fall. Before ultimate destruction, if you're in a phase of apathy and a lack of concern, a lack of zeal, a lack of drive. Now listen, I'm not talking about being an emotional basket case. Okay, I'm not talking about being a, an excessive zealot All right, that spits on everybody that comes up and tries to have casual conversation with them. That's not what I'm saying. Like that you just run around vomiting on people whether they have their shield up or not. That's not, that's not, like when people see you coming and they're scared of what you have to say, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? I'm talking about having a purpose, a direction, where we're continuing to pursue God today the same way that you did when he led you out of Egypt, when he led you out of sin, when he brought you from that place to this place, and maybe he hasn't done it yet, and that's the evaluation that God has sent you here to make today. The apathy stage, it seizes our soul. It's the real enemy of religion. David Brown in... Uh, his uh, defense of his book, The Da Vinci Code, he, he wrote that the real enemy of religion is not fiction. The real enemy of religion is apathy. It's a lack of concern by God's people. It's a lack of uh, a care or, or pressing forward or, or passion being directed to the right place by the people that are supposed to know him and understand. Apathy seizes us when we forget where we came from. When we begin to lose our spiritual hunger. Or we begin, to be, we begin to become satisfied by things other than Him. When we stop thirsting after righteousness and we become content to simply exist. Listen to me, friend. Jesus is not something that you try. He's someone that you choose. And when you choose Him, you don't just make a choice one time at an altar. You give Him your life and from that day forward, you pursue Him with everything that He's placed inside of you until one day you hear the trump of the Lord and you walk into His presence and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. Here is your reward. It's not something that you try on to see if it works or fits. He is someone that we choose. And by the way, if you still have a heartbreak, 
beat and you still have breath in your lungs. That breath was the breath that God gave Adam. That is the spirit of the Lord living inside of you. So don't you think that your time has been served and that your day is over. Don't you look at your life and go, well, I'm glad I did that. No, listen, that's yesterday's testimony, yesterday's accomplishment. I still have vision for the future. God still has a plan and a purpose for you and your family. And I don't care if you're 8 years old, 88 years old, or beyond. It doesn't matter. If you still have the breath of God inside of you and a heartbeat, then God still has you here for a reason. We may stand on your shoulders as we move forward, but God still has something for you to accomplish. No matter where you are, what you're doing. We can never forget that we were saved to serve. We can never forget that if we lose our all of God, we are one step away from the destruction for ourselves and everybody around us. See, the Holy Spirit is not just our gift. We are His glory. The Bible says that it is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God that Jesus came and purchased. That's what the veil was torn from the top to the bottom to release it out of the holy holies into the uh, availability of anyone that would pursue and choose and receive. But then the scripture also says that we were created in his image for his glory. So we're, he's not just our gift. We are his glory. And we have to continue to be in awe of Him. We have to continue to not just be saved and satisfied, but saved and serving and continuing to grow in our salvation and our relationship with Jesus. And one of the things that I forgot to say at the beginning of this message was that David had to go from the pasture to the palace. But that hadn't happened in a day. It didn't even happen in a moment. Now, Jesus took him out of darkness and into the marvelous light in one experience with the anointing. But then he had to go back to the pasture and be more than he was before. The journey from the pasture to the palace was a process. And we've got to be willing to go through the process. We don't just get to get on a... a, Now, I would love it if this existed. Um, Those little, like a teleporter, you know, if we just like for a moment. Like if I could have skipped newborn, I'd have done it. I'm telling y'all right now. Like, if I just, not me personally, but like all three, all three newborn stages, if I could have just gone to like talk back, you know, like, like laugh and play, not like mouth back at me because I slapped that. But he did, if I'm doing, only, never mind. And so, anyways, but I'd have skipped like the, I'd have skipped all that. Like, I like the feedback, even in a preacher. Like, I was looking for that as my child. But listen, there's no teleportion machine. And there's no ability to teleport in Christianity. There's no ability to teleport in this journey, in this process called sanctification. And so often we look at the deliverance and the destination. We look at the day that we got saved and the day we get to go to heaven. And we forget that there is a journey and some things to accomplish along the way. See, I don't remember a whole lot about the trips that I took, but I remember a whole lot about getting there. (laughs) Because that was when the ignorant stuff happened. Come on, somebody. Like, you got photos, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot we even went there. All you remember was a car ride on the way. (laughs) You remember the day or the situation, but you don't remember all the excitement of the destination. There is a journey in this thing, and you cannot become apathetic along the way. Scholars refer, refer to the apathy stage as the dark days of David. While his soldiers fought battles, David stayed home. He slept during the day. And he arose to play at night. Scripture says at eventide, when everyone else was getting ready to go to bed, he arose from his bed and began to party. David became a a voyeur, if you will, a, 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 a modern day pornographer in biblical terms at that time. He became an addict. He became someone who fantasized in his mind more than he did focus on his reality and be obedient where he was. And eventually, finally, he acted upon his, his fantasy. He became satisfied with simply surviving instead of continuing to pursue the call of God upon his life. His addiction really was just an unhealthy appetite for something that he was created to have. And we see that still today. All across our land, all across even our community, 
Man, I've got this addiction. I've got this stump. I've got this stronghold. I've got this situation. And really, it's just an excess, an unhealthy appetite of something that God actually desired to fulfill you by. Isn't it interesting that marriage is the number one thing that's attacked in the very beginning? And, and, and it's the number one thing that we see people succumb to, that relationships with the opposite sex or, God forbid, the same sex is the thing that is causing the demise of this nation. It's what's producing the children that are being murdered at a mass rate. It's what's, uh, it's what's causing children to be broken. It's what's causing teenagers to commit suicide and cut themselves when nobody else is walking. It's all about the relationship. But it's the one thing that God created in the very beginning. He said it's not good for man to be without. It's relationship from the very beginning. He looked at Adam and said it's not good for you to be alone. Even though you're with me in the cool of the afternoon, i got to give you something more. And I want you to have a relationship. And to this day, it's those relationships that cause us to become apathetic, that cause us to become lose our concern for other people. A six-year study in ministry today of, of pastors showed that 51% of ministers privately, they didn't announce this in their pulpits, but 51%, and man, I hope this number is embellished, but I fear it's not. Over half of the ministers in this study confessed that they had a problem with pornography or some other form uh, of uh, in, infidelity or uh, immorality. But listen, friend, sin does not sneak up on us. Sin, sin's not hiding around the corner in the dark waiting for you to stumble by. He, he's, sin, is, sin is not me. Now, I may have sinned, but uh, just a couple of days ago, my my family was out walking around and the neighborhood is they just to get out of the house because I mean you got all these kids in this one spot and it gets ignorant and so it was just, they were just getting out of the house for a little while and and I came back home while they were gone and uh, I heard uh, Gabriel and Gabriel and Adeline are extremely competitive Emery doesn't really care but uh, Gabriel and Adeline I don't know where they get this from but they like to win like they just they refuse to lose at, at all cost even like doors on hinges, like they'll just take them off and I'll have to replace them. They're, they're not for losing. So I heard the, you know, against the door, I won! And so Gabriel comes in the house and he's walking through the living room. Well, I hear him coming. Remember, I'm not sin. Sin doesn't do this. But I did. So I stood, I stood in the hallway and I was trying to open up my phone real quick because I knew it was going to be a good one. And he came around the corner. He was singing his own praise. I to win, I win. He talks and sings to himself. I don't know where he gets that from either. Uh, but he's talking and singing to himself. And he comes around the corner. And I'm standing right there with my phone. I said, hey, boy, what are you doing in my house? And he goes, ah! And then he just kind of ran with it, you know, like he realized I got him. So he was going to over-dramatize it. He ran back through the living room and bust out the back door and started telling on me to his mama. I'm like, boy, she's on my team. You can't get her. She's not going to go against me. She might have had you, but you came from me. I had her first. Because, so even though it's not really true, most something, anyways, so... But sin doesn't do that. James actually spells out the process of succumbing to sin. And it is a process. It's a slow fade. Here's what happens. Here's when, when, we come to, when sin comes to fruition. It's because we stop listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you will, you are asleep to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden you begin to take some steps. And the Holy Spirit is like an alarm clock. I mean, his conviction is, he is sounding heaven's alarm for you to take a turn, to come back, or don't do that, don't go there, don't look that way, don't think that way, don't remain apathetic, answer the call, confess him as, whatever it is. And here's what we do, snooze, snooze, and eventually we learn how to turn the alarm clock of the Holy Spirit off so many times that we end up just going back to sleep. And we sleep in and miss what God had for us. And we end up like David, waking up when everybody else is going to bed. Don't turn the alarm clock of the Holy Spirit off. Don't callous yourself to His conviction or you will become what He's trying to warn you about. See, David began to hear from even the people that he was in leadership over. God's last ditch effort to David was to send his servants, the people that would make him mad. Well, if he won't listen to everybody else, he won't listen to reason, he won't listen to me, the Holy Spirit, then I'll send him people that will make him mad. 
to warn him. Maybe, perhaps, in his anger, I can get his attention. And his servants would warn him, this isn't right. Don't take, Uriah, don't take your neighbor's wife. Don't take Uriah's wife. Don't become the adulterer. And unfortunately, a slow fade of sin where David began to believe the songs that were sung about him. And then he began to stare at people's wives from roofs instead of leading the army when the kings went out to battle. Ultimately, a slow fade turned into a treacherous fall. And I want you to remember this. Write it down and and carry it with you as I will throughout the rest of our ministry. Because again, I believe that this is prophetic word, not just for me. And, And I don't have to be afraid, but I do need to be aware. And as long as I'm aware and I keep my eyes focused on Jesus, then I'll be okay. And so will my family. But when David lost his passion, David lost his family. When David forgot his purpose, he lost his family. When he forgot that he was just an average shepherd boy in a field alone until God recognized him, he began the process of the next phase. The sixth phase is the anarchy stage. This is a stage where the wheels fall off. It's the stage where David's sin began to find him out. And where the rebellion that began in David's heart begins to show up in the lives of others. He began to reap what he was sowing. When we read about David's sin with Bathsheba, we look at it and we appreciate God's grace. We appreciate God's mercy. We realize that God didn't remove him from office and God tried to make a way for him to recover. We celebrate the mercy of God and the goodness of God that God gave David a second chance. And and because of God's grace, David was able to, to recover from this. But we fail to see in this anarchy stage is what's not always preached is that consequences, there were some consequences that David never recovered from. The Bible says that from that day forward, the sword would be against the house of David. And it's not because you've had a failure before that the sword stays against you in your home forever. It's because of the multitude of sin that David continued to commit. That he repented of the sin that he had had committed, but he didn't repent of the sin that he was committed. It was the multitude of sin from that day forward that David continued in. It was the same sin that Moses continued to commit. It was the sin of blaming other people instead of taking responsibility for his actions. It was the sin of expecting God to do all the work when we were perfectly capable of doing some of it on our own. It's expecting God to intervene and do uh, what we were perfectly capable of doing on our own. Listen, friend, God doesn't do what we're capable of doing. He meets us where we're not able when we pick up the obedience and do everything that we can. When we become like Zacchaeus and we repent before he even asks us to and we go out and pay back everything that we stole, everything that we were guilty of, everything that we were ashamed of, that's the sign of repentance is that you would not stay the same and expect God to change it. That you would go out and do something different. Because you can teach what you know, but you will reproduce who you are. David began to celebrate himself and instead of serving. David began to, to stay home and watch other people do what he was called to do. David began to fantasize and fulfill his own addictions and his own lust. David paid a high price for a cheap thrill in a moment. And then he began to commit a multitude of sins that were even more detrimental than the sin that he had already committed. Which was not accepting the blame. And not correcting within his own heart, much less within his own house. So he began to reproduce what he was. It's the difference between telling your children to do something and training them to do something. The Bible does not say, tell your children about what you know because they want to be like Jesus too. It says, train your children in the way they should go and as they are older they will not depart. And that's a promise of God. And you may look and say, well, my kids aren't doing it. Well, that's okay. You just keep training and you just keep praying. And you let God bring the harvest in the moment that he gets ready to. Because I can promise you that rebellion can only run so long as long as you're continuing to repent and accept responsibility of it. But David didn't do that. Can I tell you this stage is avoidable? Anarchy is always avoidable. If you're willing to repent. If you're willing to not point the finger, but accept the blame. 
to become and continue becoming. In this story, the Bible says that David had a daughter named Tamar. And he had a son from another mother named Amnon. And in the scripture, there's a reference of being in love. And by the way, you're welcome to find another one if you would like. And you can email it to me. You can shoot it to me if you can find another example um, where I'm wrong right here. But I see specifically two examples. It's really the only time that the scripture says anything about being in love. The Bible says that Amnon was in love with his sister Tamar, so he raped her. And the scripture says that Samson was in love with Delilah, so he could not refuse her. So that feeling of being in love is not necessarily something that comes from heaven. It could be something that's inside of you that's sent to confuse you about the commitment that you've already made. Because love is not a feeling, it's a covenant. Love is not something that you feel, it's something that you decide about the people that you have committed and covenanted to. And if you follow your feelings, then you will be led astray just like, just like Amnon and just like Samson. But if you follow Jesus, he will never lead you astray and he will define your love and therefore position you to be able to love the way that you were created to. Love is not a feeling. It's not a place you go to and fro. It's a covenant. It's a commitment. Why did Amnon rape Tamar, his half-sister? Because he saw his daddy get away with sexual sin. And he thought he could do it too. Why did Absalom, Tamar's full brother. Tamar had a brother named Absalom. And it would be Absalom that would be the one that would try to take the throne away from David. It would be Absalom that would rebel against David's kingdom. And try to take the kingdom for himself. It would be Absalom that would go and kill Amnon, his half-brother, for raping his full sister Tamar. Why did Absalom rebel against David and desire to take his throne and even his life? The answer is simple. Absalom had to do what he thought David would never. Absalom had to take responsibility for something that David never took responsibility for. So Absalom killed Amnon to try to clean up the mess that David didn't take care of. No wonder Absalom sat at the gate and started telling people that David didn't care about their needs. He didn't believe his daddy cared about his needs. Why would he think his daddy cared about anything else? If he wasn't willing to clean up his own house, then why would he be willing to handle the kingdom and clean up the mess that's all around him? So Absalom sat and said, "Nobody. David doesn't care about you. David doesn't care about this kingdom. Ask me, I'll tell you. I saw my half-brother rape my half-sister. I had to kill him and deal with it because my daddy never dealt with it. He just handed it down to me. What we don't deal with, what we don't handle, we hand down to the next generation. Are we delegating to our legacy? Or are we dealing with it so they don't have to? Are we digging digging ditches that they could fill with water and receive from? Are we looking at things that we know we need to take care of and thinking, oh, God will handle that? No, 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 friend. What you don't deal with, what you don't handle, you hand down. So what are we handing down? Are we handing down a field that's prepared? Are we handing down a mess that they've got to handle? You know why Ahithophel, David's trusted and beloved counselor, joined Absalom's rebellion? Ahithophel, the commander of David's army, went and joined his son Absalom in his rebellion. And David cries out against Ahithophel for betraying him. You know why Ahithophel did that? This is how important Ahithophel was. In 2 Samuel... The scripture says David would go to Ahithophel as if he was from God himself. And the words of Ahithophel were as if it was an oracle from God. And he would trust him and he would receive advice from him. But in 2 Samuel chapter 23, the scripture begins to list the mighty men of David. The battle, the warriors of David, the the mighty men of the house of Israel. And among those was the name Eliam, son of of Ahithophel. In verse 39, it's listed, Uriah the Hittite was one of them. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. What I've read over a thousand times until somebody else pointed it out to me was in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the scripture says in verse 2, at eventide, David rose up from off of his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. 
And from the roof, he saw Bathsheba washing herself. And David sent and acquired after her. And one of David's servants, watch this, said, Listen, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, your right-hand man, your counselor, your advisor, the commander of your army? Is this not Bathsheba, the granddaughter of of Ahithophel, the commander of your army, the wife of one of your other mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, the grandson-in-law of Ahithophel. So why was Ahithophel so against David? Well, I don't know how many friends you have, but man, if I had one that went and slept with my granddaughter, I wouldn't have to wait on the Holy Spirit to kill him. I'd take care of it for him. And apologize to Jesus when I got there. (laughs) This is what this man did. The king, the anointed one. Ahithophel's like, the dude slept with my granddaughter. Killed my grandson. He killed my great-grandchildren's daddy. Put him on the front line, lied about it. Set him up to be murdered and slain. But I'm telling you, listen, when you begin to celebrate yourself instead of serving others, you take the first step towards the stage of anarchy that you may or may not ever recover from and your children's children will continue to pay for. It's all about where the glory goes. We can't handle glory that only God deserves. Ahithophel was the father of Eliam, who was Bathsheba's father. Uriah the Hittite was Bathsheba's husband. David's mighty man turned against him because he killed one of their leaders and raped one of their granddaughters. And yet in Psalm 55, David wants us to sympathize with him because his counselor is betraying him. David has not accepted responsibility for his actions in Psalm 55. Oh Lord, slay my enemies. God's like, do you hear this dude? (laughs) He's asking me the wrong questions. Instead of asking me to take care of somebody else's business, he needs to be asking me to forgive me of his. Because he's got to accept the blame. Stop pointing the finger. Write this down. My lack of repentance will show up as rebellion in the people that I care about the most. My lack of repentance will show up as rebellion in the people that I love the most. Listen, friend. My repentance will lead to their redemption. If I will just accept responsibility and not just receive salvation, but remain in salvation. Let me tell you one more story. When I was in Chandler, Texas, I became friends with a, a man in his 50s, and I, I don't even really know how we became so close. Um, he didn't have a son in the youth group, his kids were all grown, and just I guess the Lord just drew us to one another. And he was telling me about his 20-year-old son that had kind of backed away from church and was kind of angry at God, not really living for him. And, and come to find out, I had already met this guy in the gym. Um, you know, we don't have a ton of people come to our office, but there's a ton of people in this community. You can't build a church in an office. So that's why I try to get our staff out in this community as much as possible throughout the week. Um, I met this guy in the gym. Uh, in Chandler and and we began to find common ground because I don't try to just meet people I try to relate to them (laughs) because if I can find a like uh, if I can find a place to relate I might be given the opportunity to share something relevant so we began to talk about common ground you know there's duck hunting and I was like dude we just did really good last weekend I'll take you there I know exactly where it is we can go when you want to go so we got up a couple of days later 1 30 in the morning which is is dumb just for the record it's just um, but if I get up that early, I do want to shoot something. I'm just saying. Like, if I get up before the sun comes out, I want something to die that day. I mean that in the best way possible. Um, and then you can only say stuff like that in South Louisiana, so don't share this on Peter's website, please. Um, so we got up, and we drove there, and uh, we got out of the truck, and we've got all our decoys and, and waders. And I don't know if you've ever tried to walk a long ways in, in waders and decoys. It kind of looks something like this <laughs> until they made those new ones. But... We're going down, and, and I get to the place, and I'm like, this is where we killed all the ducks. He's like, okay, there's a problem. <laughs> so we were still standing on dry ground. See, 
two weeks earlier, a flood had come through the area, and, and all the little ditches, we would call them bayous, okay, they began to flood, and, and we had water up to here just two weeks earlier, but, but that morning, I was standing on dry ground, I was like, dude, we killed a ton of mallards and, and wood ducks, like, right here two weeks ago, he was like, okay, listen, it was all dried up, for me, looking back, there's some spiritual significance there. You can't just keep going to the same place and expecting it to produce, reproduce the same results. Just because it's done it before in the past doesn't mean that you keep going to the same place and expecting there to still be water there. You've got to press on. You've got to move forward. If you come to a place, well, man, I've been here before and I didn't feel it this time. I've been here before and God didn't meet me this time. It's nothing wrong with God. It's that God wants to move you from where you are to the next place. He has something else for you to discover. A new purpose, a new plan, maybe a new story that you share 15 years later as an example of what you shouldn't have done. So we pressed on, we moved forward, and this is, this is kind of the essence of why I even began to tell this story. It was beginning to begin, uh, become kind of daylight, and we were, I saw ducks. I was like, look, there they are. If we can get over there, we can get on them, and we'll be good. And so we began to, like, I, I'm leading the way here because I'm the duck hunter and going to take this guy duck hunting. <laughs> this is terrible. And so here we go, and, and I, start, I have decoys and my shotgun, and I'm in waders. Okay, and so if you just division this with me, I'm, I take off running, you know, because I'm an athlete. And so uh, here I go. Ah! Well, I saw ground. It was ground. That's, it looked just like the dirt next to it, but it wasn't. It was, it was like muddy East Texas swampy stuff. And so what I thought was solid ground I, was a sinkhole. And so I'm like, yeah! And I've got my gun and the decoys, and I am in, I don't know what, up to here. I'm telling you, this high. And this dude, he ain't even mad. He is on the ground, rolling, laughing at me. I'm like, stop laughing at me and help me. I came to duck hunt. <laughs> I brought you on this. Stop finding entertainment in this. Let's go kill the ducks. Listen, I told you all of that to say that just because you get stuck somewhere doesn't mean you have to stay there. You don't have to let your scene turn into your story. You don't even have to let your story turn into a soap opera. In fact, if you will confess, if you will repent, then God will begin the, the seventh stage that David needed to go through the entire time, which is the realignment stage. That if you will call out for help, then He will answer you. And He will pull you out of the mess that you got yourself in. Now, I wish I could tell you we got out of that hole and killed a whole lot of ducks. But I'm telling you, they got worse. <laughs> it's a whole lot more of that story. But here I am. Like that thing didn't take me out. I can tell you all kinds of testimonies of junk that I took myself through and the people that I love through. But I did one thing right all of those years, every one of those times, I called out for help to the only one that mattered. And he began, when I began to repent, it didn't matter what had happened. The judgment of God came upon me. He, came to, he began to convict me and correct me quickly. There's a difference between conviction and consequence. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit sounding that alarm going, hey, you can do something different. You can confess your sin and confess Him as Lord. And I will intervene. I will save you, set you free, and, set you free and put you on a new path. Condemnation is not from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation is from the devil. It's when He reminds you of all the junk that you did and wants you to continue to be ashamed of it and continue to carry the guilt of it. And He shows you that there's nothing that you can do to make it any better. Well, listen, friend, I got good news for you today. There is nothing that you can do to make it any better. But there is something that He's already done that if we can just get connected to, it is the power of God unto all of those who are willing to believe. He carried the cross up the hill and proclaimed before heaven and earth that it is finished. And in Him, so is 
is my sin, so is my shame, so is my sorrow, so is my struggle, so is my pain. I don't have to stay there. I might have been stuck there, but I've got a new path and a new purpose. I get to be realigned even if I've been there a hundred times before. What he's done in the poor, he will do again and even more than this, says the Lord. Thank God for his grace to repent and his mercy to realign. Yeah, David lost his sons. David lost his best friend. He lost the respect of his soldiers. And he lost his integrity. Why? Because sin's glossy advertisement forgets, forgets to paint the ugly side. It advertises all this fun and all this excitement and all this fulfillment. And then you get to the other side and you feel worse before you ever went there. Good news is Psalm 51 verse 7. Closing. David writes something significant. David writes about the place that he should have stayed. And I want you to read this today and I want you to make it personal. Don't, let, don't just let it be God's word. Let it be your word. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. That's condemnation. That's not from Jesus. That's from Lucifer. Remove the stain of my guilt. And Father, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right, a loyal spirit within me. I don't care if you take my title. I don't care if you take my family. I don't care if you take my joy away from me for a moment. I know that sorrow may last for a night, but His mercy's made new every morning. And there's still joy to be found in my next. So I say, do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the day when I was average, the day when I was alone, the day that I realized that though my father on earth had forgotten me, my heavenly father never forsook me and he is never going to. The day that you anointed me for a purpose and a cause, bring back my passion, reposition me, realign me and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to the rebels. I will teach what I've learned in repentance to those who are still rebelling. And they will return to you as well. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. And I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O God, that I may praise you with my mouth. If you will confess Him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you shall be saved. In Jesus' name, there's a realignment waiting on you. But the realignment is waiting for repentance. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, help us to go back where we began. Help us to go back to the place that we were created to never leave. Help us to never lose the awe of your presence. And even now, I pray that we wouldn't be condemned, but we would be convicted, inspired to change. Holy Spirit, conform our hearts to you and confirm within us that we are sons and daughters if we receive what you've had for us. If you're in the room right now with nobody looking around, don't don't grab your stuff yet. Just... Just settle with us for just a second. I know I've gone a little bit over, but this is the most important part of the whole service. This is why we do health fair and serve day and small groups and next steps. Everything is for this moment. If you're in here today and you are not in line with Jesus, maybe you've received salvation a thousand times. Maybe you've never received before at all. But you want to leave here with Him as Lord and in control of your life. We're going to pray in just a minute, all together. And if you would say, Chris, please include me in that prayer. I don't want to leave here the same as I came in. I don't want to leave here out of line with Jesus. I just want you to lift your hand right where you are and say, that's me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. 
I don't want to leave here out of line. I want to receive forgiveness today. I want to receive restoration. Anybody else? Thank you. I see you. I get it. Alongside those all who believe and maybe you feel like you were in the right place, but man, there's just some stuff coming up against you, maybe even prevalent in your family. And today the Holy Spirit began to say, hey, look, if you'll make just a few adjustments, I'll begin to fix from top down. If there's just some things that the Holy Spirit said to you today that, that you could take responsibility for and start accepting the blame and make sure that you and, and Jesus are right in whatever it is that he's dealing with you in and then you'll trust him to deal with the rest and realign everybody else. If that is what you're kind of carrying today, Maybe you're in the room and you just need some restoration. You just need some forgiveness because of something that you did or something that was done to you. I want to invite you right now. We're going to pray for that. But I want you to be honest with yourself by the lifting of your hand. Say, Chris, that's me. I need that. I desire that. Now you're just being honest with Jesus. He already knew you may as well confess. <laughs> He's just waiting for you to realize with yourself, hey, I got to get this thing right. I need this realigned. I need this restored. With all of your heart, whether you raised your hand or whether you didn't, right where you sit, I want you to repeat this prayer that I'm going to lead you in. Jesus, help me to be in line with you and your will for my life. Forgive me for falling short. Save me and the people that I love. Take my life and use me for your kingdom, for your purpose. Help me to follow you with all of my heart and discover what you created me to be. Lead others to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, right where you are, if you believe in that prayer, could you just celebrate with all of those? Come on, church, I need you to get loud and believing. Sometimes we got to align our faith together and make sure that these aren't just words that we're saying. Stand with me all over the room. I appreciate your patience today. I'm hungry too. <laughs> Promise you're not hungrier than me. Maybe you are. I just want to do two more things, okay? I really, I just, again, I want to put small groups on your radar. Um, as a staff, we talk about this often, and, uh, and, and we don't just say it. We really believe it. I believe that small groups are, are the growth of this church. I, I really do believe. Like, if we're going to be more than a weed that sprouts overnight and then goes away seasonally, if we're going to be something significant that people look to, something that grows and is healthy, I believe that small groups is the growth of this church. Discipleship is just as possibly more important than deliverance. And Sunday morning is literally just a celebration of what we believe God is doing all throughout the week. So it's extremely important that you either lead a small group or you're in a small group. And we try to find ways to make those as healthy as possible. If you want to know more about that and you have not been through next steps, this is not just something that we do. It's a way that we assimilate people. It's a way that we connect people to our church and communicate who we are and help you discover who you are. And then we find you a place to not just serve to say that you're part of the church, but we find you a place for you to find your significance in impacting eternity. If we didn't believe it, listen guys, if we didn't believe in this stuff, we would all go do something else for a living. I have literally put my livelihood at the fact that I believe in what we do. If I didn't, I wouldn't do it. So if you haven't been through next steps, if you've never been in a small group or even if you were, find your place this fall. Those things are coming up. Hey, it's such an honor to pastor here. And it's such an honor to get to speak to you. Thank you for your patience. 
I just want to bless you before you leave. If you will, just open up your hands like I'm handing you a present. Let me pray over you. Father, I love you and I thank you for these people. God, I thank you that your word is not subject to me. That it's alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it's able to divide even soul and spirit, emotions from knowing. So God, I pray that you would do what only your word can do. And that it would not return unto you void, but it would penetrate our hearts and settle in us and create and develop something that it would not have if we had not received it. Lord, would you bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. Lord, lift up your countenance upon us and in your presence, may we find peace. Holy Spirit, come into our lives and empower us to be an example for you. Anoint us to accomplish your will, to walk in your ways. And to achieve the vision that you have given this church for the community and the surrounding areas. To meet people and grow closer to you together. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. God bless you. Meet somebody that you don't know before.